In this series, we ask philosophers of technology from the 4TU Ethics Department to help us reflect on how the pandemic challenges social practices and institutions. Hello everyone, my name is Lavinia Marin and I'm welcoming you to this new episode of our podcast and I'm glad to have as a guest uh, my colleague Christina Ricci, who is a PhD and lecturer in philosophy and ethics of technology department at Delft University of Technology. She is also the joint editor-in-chief of the journal Global Bioethics and the chair of the Environmental Bioethics Affinity Group of the American Society for Bioethics and Humanities. Uh, Christina was previously a research fellow at the Institute for Advanced Studies in the Humanities, University of Edinburgh, and assistant professor in the Department of Bioethics and Interdisciplinary Studies at the Brody School of Medicine. Uh, Christina is the author of the book Principles of Green Bioethics, Sustainability in Healthcare, which appeared at the Michigan State University Press and has over 35 peer-reviewed articles in journals such as Bioethics, the Journal of Medical Ethics, the Hastings Center Report, Medicina e Morale, and Developing World Bioethics. Christina, welcome to our podcast. Thank you for having me. Um, I will start with um, the theme of our podcast, as you know, is Corona and different aspects of ethics of technology. And in your case, since you are an expert in environmental bioethics, um, I wanted to ask you first for our audience, can you briefly explain to us what is environmental bioethics? Because not many people are familiar with this term. Environmental bioethics basically has two components. It looks at how the environment and how healthcare interact and impact each other. So on the one hand, environmental bioethics assesses the carbon output of healthcare buildings and resources just in the way that if you were to examine the sustainability of a university or of your local cafe, you would examine things like the carbon impact of the heating and cooling structures. You would look at the carbon footprint of transportation of the employees to and from the business. And you would also look at something like if there's LED lights, if you're using renewable energy to power your buildings, and how much meat is being served in the hospital. So that's one area of environmental bioethics, and a considerable amount of work has been done there, particularly in the UK with the NHS Carbon Reduction Strategy, which has legally binding carbon reduction measures attached to all of the healthcare services. The second part of environmental bioethics is the climate change health hazards that come from carbon in the atmosphere. Climate change health hazards are things like severe weather, tornadoes, hurricanes. In the Netherlands, flooding is especially a concern. Drought, food scarcity, and also conflict over natural resources. Climate change health hazards affect thousands of people worldwide. And in fact, asthma is one of the largest places of climate change health hazards that really affects people, including children. And that's more connected to public health. So these two streams in tandem are environmental bioethics, both the carbon impact of healthcare itself and then climate change health hazards, which the healthcare industry has to take care of as a matter of cure and treatment. Okay, so then I noticed that um, 
what being strand is that of the medical waste and the carbon footprint of healthcare. And my question is, why should we worry? And how big is that? The carbon impact of healthcare is significant. Recent data shows that it's anywhere between five to about nine percent of any given country's national carbon footprint. So in places like the United States, which is one of the top three polluters in terms of carbon emissions in the world, the healthcare industry is about 8% of the country's carbon footprint, making it really significant. Because carbon emissions don't stay within national borders and they essentially get exported to other countries, this has become a global concern because in the industrialized world, healthcare carbon is being emitted at such a pace that it is affecting neighboring countries, particularly those that either don't have the healthcare infrastructure to take care of people affected by climate change health hazards, but also people who don't benefit economically from the exportation of those carbon emissions. The carbon of a healthcare country needs to be situated within quality of life and particularly medical quality of life. So it would be a fallacy to think that the more healthcare carbon that is expended, that the better the healthcare outcomes are for the citizens of the country. So it's important to look at who's using the healthcare carbon and for what. For instance, in the United States, the um, quality medical quality of life is really varied depending on age and race and sex, due in part to issues of structural racism. So even though the national carbon footprint is very high, it doesn't mean that all citizens are benefiting from it. Similarly, countries that have better health outcomes than the United States, such as Germany and Norway, and indeed the Netherlands, have lower national carbon footprints of their healthcare system in terms of a percentage. So there has to be a way, and there is a way, to readjust healthcare carbon emissions so that people can simultaneously have better medical quality of life and also so that the healthcare carbon is reduced. All areas of life need to be responsible for carbon reduction, and that includes healthcare just as much as it would the automotive sector. Christina, I wanted to ask you about the, the medical waste and the carbon footprint of healthcare. Why should we be worried about this? Well, the carbon impact of healthcare is a significant amount of any country's total carbon impact. So, for instance, in the United States, it's about 8% of the country's total emissions. And that number doesn't really have any normative significance unless you situate it first within the national carbon footprint. So, because the United States is one of the top three polluters in the world in terms of carbon emissions, it means that its healthcare system is also incredibly resource intensive. As you know, carbon emissions don't stay within national borders. They get exported into other countries who then suffer from climate change health hazards and also who don't necessarily have the resources to spend on healthcare themselves. So it's really a double burden of um, polluting and then also people who are in those countries that are suffering the effects of climate change health hazards often don't benefit economically from the exportation of those emissions. In the United States and other places that have a very lucrative healthcare system, it is a money-making endeavor. So there is financial profit, but also the exportation of carbon emissions. The second consideration of why healthcare carbon is an ethical issue 
is because large and unjust healthcare disparities are hidden within the national carbon footprint of healthcare, even when you look at it per capita. So it's a fallacy to think that more healthcare carbon translates to better healthcare outcomes. It simply doesn't. There are countries in Europe in particular that have a lower national healthcare carbon footprint, but higher quality, medical quality of life than, say, the United States. Some of this is attributable to things like systemic racism, lack of access to healthcare systems, bias in healthcare, and other biomedical concerns. But the takeaway is that healthcare carbon needs to be reduced not only to as a matter of justice to people around the world who suffer from climate change health hazards, but it also needs to be readjusted so that everyone has a better quality of life. And we can do that by examining where healthcare carbon is being emitted perhaps unnecessarily or without clinical benefit and where we actually need to spend more healthcare carbon getting medical resources to those who currently don't have medical opportunities. Yes, that's very interesting. And I really like the idea that more carbon footprint doesn't translate into better healthcare. I think we should stress this more. So now my next question is about the other strand of your research, which is about healthcare and environmental exploitation. How are these two connected? So they're con connected in a few ways. First is that when healthcare is producing carbon emissions, it's either coming from upstream resource use or it's polluting on sort of a downstream resource use. So upstream excavation of healthcare resources includes things like research and development, the mining for minerals, the research being done in labs, perhaps to develop a vaccine, And this can be environmentally exploitative in that it takes and uses natural resources. Now, I want to make clear that a lot of this is for medicine, and medicine is generally a good, and we want people to have good, healthy lives. Really, the ethical problem is if these developments are marginally beneficial or if they're incredibly using incredibly rare resources. The second place of healthcare and environmental exploitation is the downstream impacts. This is what has been talked about for the last 30 years in healthcare. So you can talk about the effects of waste, toxic waste dump sites, pharmaceutical runoff and water, and other sorts of contamination that is directly a result of healthcare. And now these again have been addressed through public health. But what has been really under-considered at this point is the carbon impact of new medical developments, techniques, and procedures. And that's what I've been focusing on in my first book on green bioethics. If I can have a follow-up question to this one, you mentioned that um, we, don't want, uh, we don't want to have environmental exploitation when the, when the procedures are marginally beneficial. And I wanted you, can you clarify this? How do we know when something is marginally beneficial? Do we have perhaps an example? One example would be some medical procedures that perhaps don't actually need a medical solution. So if you look at rates, success rates for treating mild depression, and you look at pharmaceutical prescriptions versus increase in physical activity, they have very similar clinical outcomes. 
So it's marginally beneficial, if at all, to prescribe pharmaceutical for low-grade depression because what you can do to treat it is free and has no carbon impact and no medical side effects, whereas the pharmaceutical itself has a significant carbon output. And in fact, pharmaceuticals are one of the top contributors within healthcare to healthcare carbon, and it may have side effects as we all know, like dry mouth or dizziness, in addition to the fact that it's difficult to sometimes adhere to a pharmaceutical routine and that there may be barriers to accessing healthcare or treatments may be delayed, whereas something like exercise you can do almost anytime, anywhere. I see. So in this example of treating depression, actually it's also about... um easier access and in a way, not not just the environmental exploitation, but it's just better overall. Yes, and a lot of things are like that because anytime you use the healthcare industry, you are at risk for disease and infection, for medical error, for pain and tribulations as you're going through trying to find the right, for instance, pharmaceutical for you. And a lot of this goes back to preventive health care when possible, because if you don't have to go to the medical industry, then generally you're a healthier person. And if we can prevent health care problems, then we do, as you say, point have a double dividend in that it's better for the people because they don't have to suffer the health care problems. But it's also better for the planet because then we're not spending carbon resources on treating something that could have been prevented or easily taken care of through a natural alternative. I see. That's very interesting. Um, Now I want to move to a very uh, interesting example that you gave in one of your articles about um, some doctors in the UK who are protesting against climate change. And if I can quote from your article, you said there that certain doctors reinterpret traditional medical codes of conduct to not only include, but also mandate climate action as a matter of personal integrity. So it would seem here, and I want to ask you if this is the case, that as a doctor, it seems that they have two duties. One is duty of care, the medical duty, and then the duty against climate change. And I wanted to ask you, is there a conflict here? Is there a priority between these duties? They are actually one and the same duty. They're kind of two sides of the same coin. So the doctor's first code is the Hippocratic Oath, first do no harm. And it has been in the last few decades with the rise of individualistic biomedical ethics and people's entitlement to medical autonomy the nature of the patient-physician relationship has been really insulated. And so the doctor has tended only to think of what is best for the patient in front of me without considering the effects of the medicine on extended family, on ecosystems, and on nature. But what's being forgotten in that paradigm is that once the patient leaves the doctor's office, she may be subjected to the same climate change health hazards as everyone else. So as the doctor receives a patient, and let's say the patient has recently gotten a cancer diagnosis, and the doctor is considering which option to pursue, which is clinically indicated, 
and what's most effective for the patient's goals. And the doctor says, we're going to do everything we can for you. And the patient says, yes, I want everything done. Everything done has a carbon impact, even if it's marginally beneficial, as we talked about, or if there's a very low success rate or a very high chance of there being other medical problems from the treatment. And while the patient will have everything done while in the hospital, when she leaves the hospital, she will still be at risk for asthma, for tornadoes, for hurricanes, from death by flooding, from infection in her food. So when the doctor considers the treatment plan, and indeed when the doctor even looks at things before treatments are needed back to preventive health care, the consideration not, needs to be not only what does this patient need right now for this particular doctor's visit, but what is best for the health of this patient and all of my patients outside of the clinic. And that really includes the risks of climate change health hazard, which are a direct result of the prescribing practices and treatment options inside healthcare itself. I see what you mean. And it's a very interesting point because I believe that you're touching on something that has nothing to do with medical ethics, but more like with psychology, that as a patient, I want to hear the doctor saying everything will be done, everything in my power. But actually, I don't know anything about the effectiveness of this. It's just like a soothing balm for my soul. And perhaps this is not the doctor's duty, actually, to make me feel better psychologically. Right. So is it like is is this part of the psychological games that the doctor must perform? No, it's actually not. And it's not within their clinical competencies. If someone feels that they want to be placated, then indeed they could go to a psychologist for validation or they could work on themselves. But the doctor's obligation is the best, most effective clinical treatment that's indicated. So if you had um, a heart problem, you would not be recommended a lung transplant that wouldn't be clinically indicated you would be recommended something that's effective and within your own personal goals and preferences. For example, if it's breast cancer, if it's mastectomy, or if it's chemotherapy. And this is why we've seen doctors protesting against climate change is because they realize that they're caught in this bind that they want to treat not only the patient in front of them, but generally you go into healthcare because you have a mission of service and healing at your core. And you don't have individual patients. Anyone could be a patient. Anyone could come into your emergency department. Anyone could need treatment. So you're really thinking about maximizing health for all people. And as I've said, not everyone has the luxury of access to health care or has health insurance or is in an urban area where they can get to a hospital if needed. So the doctors in the UK are starting to think more broadly and connecting what they're doing in their clinical practice to what's happening outside and the changing climate and saying it's simply not fair that people who can't access health care are being affected by the health care decisions that are being made and by the health care choices that medical consumers are making when a non-medical alternative would have sufficed or when they're going in for a decidedly cosmetic indication that's not clinically relevant, such as elective joint replacement surgery, fertility treatments for people who are fertile but want to schedule when they conceive, gastric bypass surgery when a change in eating habits would suffice. 
And a lot of these social problems like, quote, attention deficit disorder, low-grade depression, seasonal affective depression, and even things like allergies to flowers and lactose. All of these are in the realm of elective treatments that don't have a clinical indication. Yes. Um, so now we, we discuss this, um, let's say, one-to-one in doctor-to-patient relation and how um, climate change and environmental values could come into this relation. But if we go up towards a higher level of abstraction, would you say that there's a conflict between the medical ethics values in general and the environmental ethics duties? I don't see it that way. And in fact, as I've articulated it to the medical students I was teaching at my previous job and in various conferences and even speaking to healthcare organizations, if you speak on the terms of those healthcare providers and the traditional four principles of biomedical ethics, which are respect for autonomy, which means that what the patient wants for their medical decision making, if it's relevant and within the physician's competencies and clinically indicated, that choice should be respected. Second principle of beneficence, which is to do good. The third principle of non-maleficence, to do no harm. And the fourth principle of justice, all of those four core aspects of biomedical ethics fits really well with environmental bioethics. So if you look at the first one of patient autonomy, we're actually limiting patient autonomy when we don't give them lower carbon options or when we don't tell them that there's a way to treat their condition that doesn't require medical resources. When it comes to beneficence, the doctor is actually being better towards the patient by offering low carbon alternatives or by working towards preventive care, because again, climate change health hazards can be prevented by the lack of carbon emissions. Similarly, the doctor is being non-maleficent by minimizing treatments, by asking for less tests by asking the patients indeed to take responsibility for them for their health because by providing unnecessary or treatments then they are harming others and harming the patient through the possibility of infection or healthcare waste which leads to climate change health hazards and then that final principle of justice is particularly important because the doctor wants to be just towards all patients, which means that everyone should have access to health care and that everyone should have an equal way to experience a good, healthy life. But current medical practices are very unjust in that patients will demand extra treatments or especially at the end of life, futile treatments, last chance surgeries, even when there's no hope for meaningful recovery. And it's actually doing a disservice to provide these and an injustice because those resources are being spent in places where there is no clinical benefit and where they really should be put somewhere else. If we're going to expend carbon resources, they should make sure that everyone has a basic medical quality of life and not provide things that are not clinically within the realm of possible treatments that would bring on cures, like fu- like futile end-of-life treatments. I see the connection from the medical ethics to the environmental ethics, and I think you've drawn a beautiful parallel into how these mirror each other. 
But if I may play the devil's advocate here and let's take the patient's side and patients don't have a code of ethics. Patients are just people who want to be treated. And you mentioned patient autonomy. So there's a problem already that the, those who suffer from the effects of climate change are happen to be in global south. And those who benefit from expensive medical procedures are in the global north, so-called global north. So then how would you explain to me as a patient in a rich country that I shouldn't take a certain useless medical procedure because people in another part of the world will suffer? And yes, how, how would you make me care about this? Because I'm not saying it's not important, but how can we appeal to people's uh, reasons and intentions? That's really a great question. And fortunately, the wheel does not have to be reinvented. There's so many areas of life where consumers have already been persuaded to go green. So if you think about the tax on non-renewable bags when you go to the grocery store, carbon offsets when you fly, green companies that sell their clothing in recycled boxes, more and more people actually do want to be sustainable in all areas of life. And there have been some studies that offering lower carbon alternatives to patients are really what they want. And when I've talked to people about sustainable health care, they've said, yes, I'm so interested in transitioning my vehicle to sustainable energy, and I'm teaching my kids about climate change, and we're going meat-free on Mondays or on other days of the week, but I didn't realize that my health care had such a carbon burden. So the area of persuading the healthcare consumer, I think the ground is well laid for that, and people are eager to have greener health care. The people that are not going to be persuaded, they might not be persuaded anyway. They might be the same people who tend not to care about the environment or who have other values. And so what you can do then is talk to them about those other values that are not healthcare related, but will still produce lower carbon options. For instance, if they want a certain procedure, highlighting the risks of it and its marginal benefits would be really important. For instance, risk of death, risk of injury, risk of medical malpractice, risk of medical, in, uh, medical injury as well. And finally, it is always the doctor's final decision in terms of what can be provided that is within their competency. So it is not the case that I could go to a doctor and start demanding some surgery that the doctor is not able to perform. And the doctor has a professional obligation to only provide services which she is competent in doing, which she can recommend based on some medical diagnosis, and to not overtreat because the doctor is also beholden to a code of professional ethics, but also the code of ethics within the hospital, which is usually tied to resources and waste and economics and management of those limited resources. So the doctor would probably be violating more than one professional code if they were offering something that was purely elective or which had a marginal benefit and which at the same time would be wasting the resource, the financial resources of the hospital and the taxpayers. So it needs to be reoriented towards this different perspective of not just individual consumer, but also 
the obligations of the physician herself. If we move on again to the um, pressing issue of today, which is the coronavirus pandemic, how does this pandemic add to this conversation about environmental bioethics? The coronavirus pandemic has really done some interesting things in the way we conceptualize essential and non-essential services and in the way that the world has reacted to something so severe and limiting as the pandemic. One place where we see a point of connection with environmental bioethics and the coronavirus was really just first and foremost the reaction and the limiting of travel and the bans in place of where people could move to and how people stayed inside. And these parallel so much what happens with climate change health hazards. So in North Carolina, where I had the physician at the medical school, there would be severe hurricane warnings. And instantly you would get a text message saying, high alert, there's going to be a storm coming through, you might lose electricity, you won't be able to travel and get out. And people panic by They bought food and resources just like they did with the coronavirus when we were scared that lorries wouldn't be able to get in and out, where transportations of goods would be limited. A second thing was the instant reaction that people had to closing borders, and this is also happens with climate change health hazards, when a freeway is shut down because it's been flooded, or when um, lightning strikes and there's wildfires and you can't get out of your home. So we're starting to see more and more the mental strain of how these quick reactions happen. Also, the idea to stay at home, this will become more frequent as pollution and toxic air is prevalent. It's already the case in China and some other Asian countries that people are asked to stay inside when the weather gets really bad because of pollution, just as people have been asked to stay inside for the coronavirus And it's stressful and it's hard. We couldn't predict the coronavirus, but we can predict climate change health hazards. So that's one very significant area of overlap. A second would be our reconception of what is an essential healthcare service and what can be postponed. So in the UK, the National Health Services started limiting non-essential treatments because they had to deal with so many people being affected by coronavirus. So a lot of elective surgeries were postponed or delayed. And this highlights a few things. One is that healthcare resources are regularly allocated towards highest clinical benefits. And so this includes emergency treatment of people, and it does not include things that are elective, those cosmetic surgeries, those fertility treatments, et cetera. So already there is a way that people are somewhat amenable and willing to listen to what should take priority and understand that their healthcare desires or wants may have to take a backseat to this catastrophic medicine. Now, if we thought about the carbon emission of the medical industry as something very urgent that needs to be addressed because we're already the above the 350 parts per million in the atmosphere of safe atmospheric pollution because of the carbon emissions that cause climate change health hazards and because of the state of the planet with the destruction of ecosystems and loss of biodiversity. 
we'd be able to talk to people in a way that can engage their ability to see and really rationally understand that some healthcare services are more essential than others. And this can then be put into place through policy with an understanding that maybe they will get their elective surgery, but it's going to be postponed until everyone has access to basic medical care. So that's a second way that coronavirus and environmental bioethics has worked into the public. The third thing is the sense of solidarity and the need to protect not only the workers, but also the financial security of national health care systems. One of the most persuasive things in the UK to have people stop going outside and stop the coronavirus was just simply the effects that it was having on the overburdened healthcare workers and the threat of an unknown disease that that would have financially draining the NHS, thus jeopardizing other access to healthcare. So with this in mind, people had taken a step back from their healthcare consumerism and they did understand that for a while it would be delayed or postponed for the benefit of others. So it really showed a deep altruism that an individual who might have been scheduling their annual physician checkup understood that that really wasn't important in the grand scheme of things and that they wanted those financial and medical resources to go to someone who wasn't able to breathe or who needed intensive care or who had some other complication because coronavirus. So there's been a renewed sense of solidarity and of selflessness that I think can really be parlayed into environmental bioethics as we look forward to building a just and sustainable healthcare system post-pandemic. Yeah, I find this um, very inspiring, this idea of solidarity and altruism coming also from the patients, because this Gives, get, gets us back to our previous question of how sh why should patients care? We're actually in the corona pandemic, they show they care. So um, I like the examples that you bring and I see their point, but I would like to bring a counterpoint and this comes from my, my background, which is I'm Romanian and I know how the corona pandemic unfolded in Romania, which is Southeastern Europe, former Eastern Bloc, Soviet, and their healthcare isn't going great or stellar. And when the pandemic hit, they had to close off certain medical procedures, and those were not elective. So I know I've read an article about cancer patients who were asked not to come to get a chemotherapy because they might get infected with corona. And there were people who died of cancer because they didn't get this and also hospitals were repurposed. Those are not elective surgery or elective procedures. There were people who were left with their disabilities to suffer because corona pandemic, let's say, got the center stage. So this is just to say that in some cultures and in some countries less developed, um, the general feeling of solidarity and um, altruism hasn't been the same and some people have suffered tremendously also on a healthcare um, dimension because of the corona. That's a really great point. And in fact, it's the solidarity that's required of people in the developed world, in the rich countries, and it's justice that's the obligation to people in the developing world. It's completely unjust that people that would already be suffering would be asked to do more. That's not 
anything that medical ethics or environmental ethics would look at. Rather, it's looking at the places where there's already an incredibly high quality of life in places like the United States and Europe, where basically most healthcare needs are taken care of, and then contrasting it with places like Romania, where there's less access, like Ukraine, where there's an extremely high HIV transmission rate, like countries in sub-Saharan Africa, where women are dying hundreds every day from a lack of maternal care. And it is not asking those people who are already suffering to give up more. It's rather saying that the burden is on the rich countries who don't have pain from broken bones, who can see a physician, who have access to all of their medical needs, and then whatever they desire so that they can eat ice cream and not have an upset stomach, so that they can reproduce when they're 50 years old, so that they can get an elective shoulder replacement surgery, so that they can play golf in their gated community home. And it's looking at those people and saying solidarity is demanded of you as a matter of justice. And the developing world is entitled to that and is entitled to the justice and essentially the carbon resources that people in the developed world are using and using generally without a thought towards others. If we look at the global effect that the corona pandemic has had, and you mentioned that it people were asked to stay at home, so a lot of traveling, especially air travel, has been shut down. And we saw that this limiting of movement has decreased overall carbon emissions. Do you see this limitation as acceptable in the near future, but motivated only by ecological concerns? It's interesting because initially there was a drastic decrease in carbon emissions, but quickly what we saw was those carbon emissions were just shuffled onto something else. So as people were staying home, there were higher energy bills of staying home. As people stopped going to the grocery store, those carbon emissions went to the delivery drivers who delivered groceries from home. It's true that the global air travel had been reduced, but this is expected to come back um, doubled or tripled because people are so anxious to travel now. So even though there was a dip, it was not a dip in carbon emissions that would be carried on through the next phase of the pandemic recovery. So something more sustainable needs to be proposed, which clearly looks at the waste of personal protective gowns and equipment, of single-use instruments, of everything, all the medical resources that were being used towards corona, and also looks at the consumer habits of people, where even if there's a temporary adjustment, It needs to be a long-term sustainable adjustment in consumer habits, in commuting, in how we look at locally grown food, in air travel, and in how we use the healthcare system. So an alternative needs to be proposed that's more than just an extreme reaction because staying at home in all the places that the carbon was reduced because of the pandemic had really big mental health impacts, and that's not something that should be endorsed. Overall, in the future, do you think we should prioritize the environment in the same way that public health was prioritized during the pandemic? I mean, as an, a global catastrophe and emergency? Public health absolutely needs to be more prioritized, not only because it'll make people healthier and live better lives, but also because it's the only way forward that future generations and people in the developing world and people 
like us in the developed world can have more security in in our movements and in our lifestyle. And public health is better for everyone. It's one of those things that cuts across demographic. It does in some way, it's less appealing to the medical industry because you're preventing instead of treating because it's a little bit harder to see all of those preventive health measures like subsidizing food that's healthy and like asking people to stay away from the medical industry unless they need to go. However, it needs to be factored into not only how we move forward with biomedical ethics and technological ethics, but also how we move forward in environmental ethics and our understandings of us being so interconnected with our planet and with our environment. So then on a, on a final note uh, or on a closing note, um, what would be your message for our listeners? And our listeners are mostly patients, not doctors. What can we do to reduce our carbon footprint as um, in healthcare? There's a few things you can do. In my first book, Principles of Green Bioethics, I have a chapter dedicated to the green patient. So you could read that, but I'll summarize it for you as well. Basically, you can ask, do you need this medical procedure or treatment, or do you just want it because one of your friends had it or because you've seen it advertised? If you decide that you probably do want it, or if you're in the doctor's office and they offer you something, you can ask, is there a lower carbon alternative? Is there a way to do this without medicine? What else can I do? And if there is no other alternative and no other way to get the treatment that you need, you can also ask yourself if there's any other carbon offsets that you can make changes in your own life so that your healthcare, which is very important, can be used without any environmental guilt. So then you might consider, for instance, having fewer biological children or eating less meat or moving off the grid and seeing if there's some other way that you can have a trade-off in your life. Because essentially our moral values on a personal level are more than just strict adherence to rules. We oftentimes have these moral offsets in ways that we justify our actions. And that's an important part of being a reflective human being. And so this can also be done with our healthcare. Healthcare is vitally important. Having a good, healthy life is, you can't put a price on it. And it's so important, not only for your mental and physical well-being, but also for how you interact with your, your world around you. And so that should be one of the core things that would not be subjected to draconian carbon reduction measures. However, many aspects of life, consumerism, purchase of clothes, eating at expensive restaurants that have high carbon food served, and other lifestyle choices really don't need to be there for the happiness that people are often seeking, not only when they look to the healthcare industry, but also when they look towards how they want to live their lives. Christina, thank you for this thought-provoking conversation. My main takeaway from it is that Healthcare is not an isolated part of my life. And actually, if I'm looking at everywhere where I'm consuming carbon in a thoughtless way, I should be looking at healthcare as well. So uh, thank you so much for this discussion. And I look forward to reading more of your work. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure.